This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate Scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I'm Jeremy Myers. Hey, today we're going to be looking at Genesis 1-3. And you know, when I first sat down to do my show notes for today's episode, I thought there is absolutely no way I can talk for more than a couple minutes on Genesis 1-3. We're finally going to have a short episode. But (laughs) as things usually go with Scripture, I began to study and I found that there was way more in this one verse than I could possibly say. So I had to edit out a bunch of material. I'm going to really try my hardest to keep this episode down a little shorter. And uh, what we're going to see here is that Genesis 1-3 provides a very clear contrast for us between how religion tells us to deal with evil in the world and how God deals with evil in the world. Lots of people confuse God and religion, but they are not the same thing at all. I'm sometimes convinced that God is more concerned about religion than he is about sin. Anyway, what we're going to see is that God's way of dealing with evil leads to redemption, but the religious way leads only to more evil. So, if you want to know what you can do about evil in the world today, make sure you listen to today's show on Genesis 1-3. As usual, today's show is brought to you by Logos Bible Software. I used lots of resources for today's show from Logos Bible Software, and I'll be mentioning that a little bit as we go through the show. You can get a version of Logos for yourself. There's a link in the show notes. You can also go to Logos.com and just use my coupon code JMyers6. That'll give you 15% off any purchase from Logos. Now let's get on with the show. All right. Genesis 1-3 says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. So as I've mentioned in numerous, well, not numerous, numerous times in previous shows, there are lots of debates surrounding this text, and that's not surprising. There's lots of debates surrounding almost every single verse in the Bible. But uh, Genesis 1-3 is no different. Uh, in Genesis 1-2 is where God creates... Uh, in Genesis 1-3 is where God creates light. Uh, but some critics like to point out that, you know, God doesn't create the sun, the moon, and the stars until the fourth day in Genesis 1-14-19. So the debate here is how can there be light before there is any source of light? If you look up commentaries or some books on Genesis that might discuss this issue, the typical Christian response, at least the response I found most frequently, is that the light emanated from God, that, the, that, that God himself was the source of light. And um, another solution, which I read in some other book from years and years ago, and this one is sort of creative, I will admit, is that the days and nights in Genesis 1 are not the actual days and nights of creation, but are the days and nights in which God revealed to Moses how he created the universe. So, so day one, for example, which we'll read about in Genesis 1-5, 
is uh, not not the day in which God created light exactly, but the day in which God revealed to Moses that God created light. So what happened, apparently, according to this theory, is that God went up, uh, or I'm sorry, Moses went up onto Mount Sinai to meet with God, and he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and as part of those days up on Mount Sinai, God, uh, seven days anyway, God revealed over the course of a week, over the course of seven days, uh, this 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 vision that we're reading about in Genesis one, and so on this first day of um, of this of this vision that Moses received about creation, God was uh, showing Moses how light came into existence, and so that's why, according to this explanation, why we don't read about the sun, moon, and stars until uh, day uh, four or is it day five? I can't remember now. Fourth day, the fourth day, right? Um, <clears throat> there's a, a great parallel there between the forming and the filling. But uh, so, so that's, that's sort of that vision. Now, now, in my opinion, it's sort of a fanciful and far-fetched theory. I do think that God was giving to, to Moses a vision of creation. I mean, after all, no human was present at creation. How, how would anybody know what happened at creation unless, unless God revealed it to him by a vision? Having said that, of course, lots of other religions have very, very, very similar, nearly identical creation stories. And so if we are saying that God revealed to Moses exactly how creation occurred, then we also have to ask, all right, well then how did these other religions also get similar, nearly identical visions of how creation occurred? So that's a big question. We dealt with that a little bit in previous shows. Um, but uh, while I agree that—anyway, as far as that theory goes, I, I don't really hold to it. I, there is a vision here going on, but I don't think this is the days in which, the, which Moses received the vision. I, do, I just think that God uh, is explaining something to Moses, and we've seen what that is in previous episodes. God is revealing to Moses what God is like. Okay, This is not a how creation occurred. This is a who the creation is about, and it's about God. And God is setting himself apart from all of the other religions, all of the other creation myths, by giving this revelation to Moses, and then Moses in turn is sharing it with the Israelite people. Okay, As far as that debate about uh, how there could be light before there is sun, moon, and stars, look, uh, obviously God is the source of light. I mean, he created it, but I don't think that means that there's like light you know, pouring out of his body. We say God is light, but it's he, he's not a light. It's not like he's a giant sun up in the universe and light's just pouring out of his his being or something. I mean, maybe some people imagine him that way, but I just don't think that's the best way to imagine God. Here, look, here's the bottom line. When it comes to all these questions and all these debates, okay, the, the question about where did the light come from before there was sun, moon, and stars, that's coming from a scientific mindset that operates by scientific rules. And we need to remember that the Bible is not a scientific book. And so if we try to answer scientific questions from scientists in scientific ways using the Bible, we will lose every time. So, what do we do? The best way, in my opinion, just to opt out of the game entirely. 
recognize once and for all, Genesis 1 and 2 is not a scientific document. It is a literary document. It's a masterful piece of literature, religious, not religious, spiritual literature, that tells us amazing things about God. Uh, look, you wouldn't use, use Beowulf or, uh, or, or Hamlet to try to understand, I don't know, the laws of gravity or thermodynamics or aerodynamics or nothing like that. Look, they're not scientific books. They're pieces of literature. It's the same way with the Bible. Don't try to approach it as a scientific book to answer scientific questions. Approach it as a piece of literature which tells us about God and about ourselves. You approach it that way, then people say, well, where did the light come from before there was... It doesn't matter. It's a piece of literature. This is poetry, okay? So uh, that's how to approach it. Now, again, when we do approach it that way, all right, we can look at Genesis 1-3 and say, okay, although this verse doesn't tell us where the light came from before there was sun, moon, and stars, it does tell us something incredibly important about the situation from Genesis 1-2. All right, you got to go back one show to read, uh, to to remember, uh, to listen to what I said about Genesis one two. But just by way of summary, we we saw in Genesis one two that there were four ominous and menacing things about God's creation. This is shocking for the Israelites to hear about this God who created everything. These where these four menacing and ominous things come from, and the four things were were that God's creation was formless, it was void, there was darkness. And there was the deep. That last one is the to home. And I told you to go Google those, some of those images, and I put some of those images up on uh, the, po- the show notes for Genesis 1-2 as well. And we saw that those words and ideas would have made the Israelites wonder what kind of God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Was he just another God to be feared? Was, he, was his creation full of darkness and chaos? Because, you know, that's the way God is. Could, could he be trusted? Anyway, immediately what happens is, is this is in Genesis 1-2, the story that Moses is telling to the Israelites begins to unravel those four menacing terms. Uh, and he does them in reverse order. He begins with that last one first, the tehom, the deep. And it was the last of the four menacing terms. And at the end of Genesis 1-2, God begins to work upon the deep, the abyss. How? Well, he hovers, he flutters gently over its surface, like a little butterfly or a breath of wind, okay? And to our eyes, it doesn't look like God is doing much. And there's the truth. That is always the way it is with God. He doesn't show up as other gods do. He doesn't strike hard and fast. He doesn't go out to war against his foes. He flutters. He breathes. He whispers. And the creation account begins this way to show us that this is the way God is. All right, now, if you know anything about God from the Old Testament, or anything about the way God is portrayed in our churches today, or in many Christian books, or on TV by some preachers and pastors, you're probably thinking that, okay, Jeremy, while God may have fluttered over the surface of the waters in Genesis 1-2, it's not going to be too long just a couple chapters, in fact, before God's behavior in approach to chaos and darkness changes. And just in Genesis 6 through 8, of course, violence covers the face of the earth, and we read that there is no longer fluttering, whispering, hovering God there, but God responds to this flood of human violence with a flood of his own and drowns all of humanity except for eight people. 
All right, so the Israelite people know this story as well, and they probably have many of the same questions. And uh, they also, you have to remember, uh, they're saying, you know, well, this may be the way God acts right here in, 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 the, in creation, but as soon as sin enters the scene, right, with the fall of Adam and Eve, a different side of God makes its debut, a God of vengeance and judgment and wrath, a God who punishes, destroys, he, he demands blood sacrifice. So, we have the same questions. And I'll admit right now that sin definitely does change things. But here's the question I want to ask right now, and we will be seeing this over and over again as we progress. The question I want you to ask yourself is this. Yes, sin changes things, but what exactly does sin change? Think about it really carefully. Does sin change God? Or, or does sin change us? Okay. Does God change when we sin, or is it we who changed when we sin? Obviously, it's the latter. And so then we have to ask the question, what exactly did change? Hmm. Well, we'll see that I think one of the major things that changed when we sinned was our view of God. Our view of God changed when we sinned. We see that immediately with Adam and Eve. Uh, and so I think that that is also how you can understand some of these quote-unquote changes with God that we see later in the Hebrew text. It's not God who changed, but our view of God that changed. We'll be seeing a lot of that going forward. Um, and look, even right here, at this point in the biblical story, sin has not entered the scene, all right? But those four terms in Genesis 1-2 were definitely sinister. They're, they're malevolent. They're, they're, they're ominous. Okay, and we don't know where these things came from or how they entered into God's creation. That's not the point. Um, God's creation was formless, void, and dark. To home, and there was to home. Okay, and they are they are very much like sin. They're they're not sin, but they're like sin. And so, how does God begin to transform, change, and redeem these four traits? Well, we saw at the end of Genesis one two, He takes to home and He flutters or he hovers over it. He, he breathes upon it, and that's it. There's no cosmic battle. There's no fighting, no bloodshed. There's no power contest. There's no flexing of divine muscles. Okay? If, if God's reaction to Tehom is simply to hover or flutter over it, wouldn't it seem possible that this is also how God might react to sin? When it, enter, when it enters the scene, okay? Those are the questions I want you to ask yourself as we move into Genesis 1-3, okay? And that was a long introduction, um, but it is so important to understand this as we move into Genesis 1-3 and uh, the, the rest of Genesis as we look at the rest of creation and then what happens with sin, okay? So in response to the fourth term, to home, the deep, God responds to it by simply hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, the third term in Genesis 1-2 was darkness, okay? God is dealing with them in reverse order, and so what does he do? Well, we now see what God does about the darkness in Genesis 1-3. God responds to the darkness by speaking, 
Let there be light, God says. It's really only uh, two words in the Hebrew. Uh, in fact, here's let me, let me pull up my logos real quick. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Yehi or. Uh, the term is uh, jussive. It says here. So, uh, let there be light really is a good translation, but uh, it's almost as if God is uh, speaking to the light, I would say. He's uh, calling it into existence, in, in, inviting it to shine in the darkness, I would say. And, and that's how God responds to this third threat, the threat of darkness. Uh, again, there's no violence. Did you see any violence in the text? There's, there's no war. There's just the Word of God saying, let there be light. Now again, ask yourself, why does Moses tell the story this way? And remember, the Israelite people were very familiar with numerous other creation stories. They knew how gods typically behaved. So by telling the story this way, Moses is showing the Israelites that Yahweh is not like the other gods. Yes, he has the power to create everything, Genesis 1.1, and he, but he uses this power in the gentlest way. He hovers over the chaotic waters, and he speaks two simple words into the dark. Okay? This is completely unlike any god anywhere else in all of human history. It makes God unlike any god the Israelites had ever heard of before. In all the other creation accounts, there's always a prolonged cosmic battle between good and evil. There's bloodshed, there's betrayal, there's violence. One god cuts another in half, and then from the blood and the bones of the severed halves, he creates the world and, and people. Again, in my Logos Bible software, this is before I, it was as I was preparing for today's episode, I looked up creation myths, and I found a great article in the Tyndale Bible Dictionary. If you have that uh, book on your shelf, you could look it up yourself. Or it's available, obviously, <clears throat> in Logos. There's a link in the show notes to it, to the exact book. And uh, this article summarizes the Sumerian, the Akkadian, and the Egyptian creation myths. And all of them are very, very similar to what we read in Genesis 1. But, as I said in previous shows, uh, the key names and some key details are changed. Um, but one thing you'll notice as you read through some of the summaries of these accounts is that all of them are violent. In the Sumerian creation myth, for example, the gods lived in a garden in the east, uh, but, and they lived in peace and purity, very similar to what we read about here. But then a god named Enki, guess what he does? He rapes. He rapes three of the goddesses that were living there in the garden in the east. One of them takes his, okay, it gets a little uh, R-rated here, one of them takes his semen and creates eight plants with it, which are, guess what? Forbidden for the gods to eat. That's interesting, huh? They could not eat of these plants that were planted in the garden. And Key, however, he eats from one of the plants. Oh, wow. Sounds very similar. And so, guess what happens to him? He is cast out of the garden and cursed to die. Wow. Okay? All of that should sound very familiar to you. That's the, that's the Sumerian creation myth. Yeah, but again, you notice the violence, the rape, 
okay? The, the cursing with death. Uh, in the Babylonian creation myth, this is one that the, the Israelites were likely familiar with, um, there's a war, we talked about this one last time, with the Enuma Elish, there's this war in the heavens, and Marduk creates humanity from the blood of his slain flow. The Egyptian creation myth, which we know for sure the Israelites would have been familiar with, having lived in Egypt for over 400 years, um, they talk about this watery void, which was, guess what? Formless. And in the Egyptian creation myth, it's invisible. Uh, the earth is, it comes up out of the water. The, the ground rises up out of the water. And the Egyptian god Atum brings the rest of the universe into being. He's the creator being there. Uh, he also creates various deities to help govern creation and help creation function. But there too, in the Egyptian myth, there's a war. And the gods have to be separated from each other. So uh, it's very interesting. This, it says the sky goddess Nut, or Nut, must be separated from the earth god Geb. Uh, and it talks about the, 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 the uh, sky above and the earth below. Okay, very similar. Anyway, creation myths, Logos Bible software. Here's the point. Uh, though the creation accounts of Genesis 1 are very, very similar to many of these other creation accounts, Moses makes significant changes to them to show how our God is very different from all other gods. He's not writing to show how the world began. Okay? It's not a scientific treatise on the beginnings of the world. It's a literary piece of work to show us what God is like. Okay? And in Genesis 1-3, there is no struggle for light to shine in the darkness. No war, no violence, no bloodshed, no rape. God just says, let there be light. And the light just is. He calls it into existence. Okay? There's no cosmic war in the heavens. There's just God's word. In fact, it appears that God isn't even that concerned with the darkness. He doesn't banish the darkness. Darkness. In fact, we're going to see in Genesis 1-4, he, he works with the darkness. The darkness remains. Uh, he, he uses it for something good. That's why, you know, even though it's like sin, it's not sinful. Okay? He does not make the darkness go away. He brings light into being in the darkness. He does so with the Word. Then he works with the darkness in a beautiful dance between light and dark. Okay, so God says in Genesis 1-3, let there be light, and there was light. Just how the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of water, and that was enough. So also, God responds to the darkness simply by declaring light. He doesn't engage in battle. He simply creates the light. And why does God do it that way? Well, because light by its very definition, pushes back the darkness. Okay? It doesn't need war. It doesn't need battle. Light wins just by being light. And all of this sheds new insight, new light, I, I think, into what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. Well, being the light of the world involves struggles, fights, conflict, violence. Does light require picket lines and boycotts and strongly worded letters to the editor? Does light require us to be mean and nasty and judgmental and rude and arrogant? No. Light doesn't require megaphones and bully pulpits. It doesn't, light does not advance with the point of a sword or the signature of a lawsuit. Okay? 
And, you know, you say, oh, you're jumping way ahead. The Israelites might not have... De-. You know, of course, the Israelites didn't dealt with, deal with those things, okay? They were coming out of Egypt, though. They had similar questions. They were looking at entering into the land of Canaan, which was filled with darkness, and they were asking themselves questions. How are we supposed to respond to the darkness in Canaan? Just like you and I ask, how are we to respond to the darkness that is all around us? How can we fight back against the shadow of wickedness and the blackness of sin? And I think Moses is telling us here, we are to respond to the darkness the same way God responded to the darkness. First, he doesn't care too much about the darkness. He just says, let there be light, and there was light. I found, a, again, a great journal article uh, in my software uh, by Eugene Merrill. It's called um, The Old Testament Word, Creator et Redemptor, a little Latin in there, I suppose. Uh, basically, he points out by uh, looking at Jewish background material and a bunch of other sources, that God is redeeming the darkness. That's the really intent here. God is redeeming the darkness by calling light out of it, and he does so simply with the spoken word. Look, this is so contrary to everything else we've ever been told. Religion tells us that if you are to fight against the darkness, we need power, we need position, we need control, we need to make our voice heard, we need to uh, stand up for what is right and you know oppose evil on every front. But then we look at what God does. When he sets out to correct the darkness, he simply says, be light. Light chases back darkness simply by being light. He doesn't have to tell the darkness that it is dark. He doesn't have to invite the darkness to become light. He simply says, let there be light. And when light shines in the darkness, the darkness does not overcome it. It's John 1.5. Light doesn't have to try to be light. There's not ten steps to being light. Light just shines in the darkness. Now, I know the objection you're thinking. Jeremy, you mentioned the Canaanites a little bit before. The Israelites are facing the evil in Canaanites. But when they went into the land of Canaan, they went in with the sword. They went in with war and the battle of Jericho, knocking down walls, killing men, women, children, and everything that breathes. Yes, that's true. They did. But just as I believe we will see something shocking about the flood account and how sin changed our perspective of God, what we thought of God, I think the same principle can be applied to the Canaanite conquest. In my opinion, and I will make this case as we get there, when the Israelites went to war with the Canaanites, they failed at being light. Okay? I think that is why they annihilated most of the Canaanites. Okay? They, were, uh, they were failing at being light, and that's also why that when they annihilated most of the Israelites, did you, it, the, the, the whole point of it was so that they wouldn't fall into sin, but as we get into Judges, we see that it didn't work. Oh, they left a few alive here and there. This is the explanation we're given. They left a few alive here and there, and so now all of the Israelites fell into sin as well. I think that's a pretty uh, lame excuse. What happened is, is they tried to fight darkness with the rules and weapons of darkness, and when you do that, no light can result. Light can't come when you fight darkness with the rules of darkness. Okay. Well, Again, we'll see that when we get there. That brings us back to today, though, to you and to me. Look, 
You and I, we, we can't stand against the darkness with the tools and weapons of the darkness. You cannot adequately, properly fight evil or violence with violence without becoming evil and violent yourself. To stand against the darkness today, you, all you need to do is what God does here in Genesis 1-3 and what Jesus does throughout his entire ministry. To stand against the darkness... All you need to do is be the light. I imagine most of what I've said today might have sparked some questions or maybe some concern in your mind. Look, you can go and leave a comment on this show. Go to redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 1-3. Redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 1-3. Hey, you can also leave a rating review at iTunes. I would really appreciate that if you would. Let me little uh, know about what you think about this, uh, this show, this One Verse podcast. Have any suggestions, insights? Leaving those reviews is also going to help other people find the show. And I would really appreciate that. Check out the show notes as well. Those are at uh, redeeminggod.com, Genesis 1-3, for links to some of the articles that I mentioned in this episode. Thank you for listening. See you next time when we discuss Genesis 1, verse 4.